Good morning. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are rightly overwhelmed by the degree and magnitude of forgiveness that you have granted sinners like us saved by grace. We rightly praise you and worship you and adore you for being a God who forgives mightily. We confess before you, God, that we are completely undeserving of this forgiveness. We know the depth of our sin, we know the rebellion in our hearts, and yet, By your grace and mercy, when we were dead, you came to us and you granted us mercy in Christ. We confess as well, Father, that we do not receive this forgiveness well and that we do not grant it to others as we ought. You've called us and commanded us and you've equipped us with gospel hearts to forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven us, and yet we fail to do that. We are so thankful that you have given us Christ, that we might hear the teaching today and actually do it. We're so thankful for the power of the Holy Spirit to receive these words, and instead of laughing, knowing how difficult they are, we might embrace them in truth and say, yes, I too can forgive as Christ forgives me, not by our own power, but by yours. And so we pray, Father, that you would be abundantly gracious with us this morning as a church, that you would help us to see the degree to which We have been forgiven in Christ and give us a right gospel desire to forgive one another in the same way. Father, we want to be known as a forgiving church. We want to be known as a forgiving people, not people who harbor anger and bitterness, but who give grace and mercy freely because we have received it freely in Christ from the cross. Father, I ask that you would bless us this morning with your presence that we might know that you are here through your Spirit. Give, Give a sinner like me the ability to faithfully proclaim the gospel and give sinners like my brothers and sisters the ability to hear it and receive it and be changed by it. Father, we are not interested in religious exercise. We have not gathered here at the sake of obligation. We are here because we want to meet you. We want to have you speak to us through your word. And by your grace and mercy, we want to be transformed by it. So do that mighty work in us this morning for your glory and your honor and the majesty of your son's name. I ask, Lord, that you would have that great impact here and in all your true churches here in the South Bay. We ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. How are you this morning? You seem a bit tired. Are you tired? I hope not. I pray not. This, uh, this passage ought to leave you less tired after receiving it than you are if you are in a state of that right now. Um, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Matthew 18 if you're not there already. I pray you are. The title of the sermon is 70 times 7. You heard Tim reading from the ESV, which is probably not the best translation for that latter part. In the Greek, it says 70 times 7 which is better. So 490 is the number we're looking at, and we'll see how that plays out. Not 70 times, but 70 times 7. If you've been paying attention to the news at all in these last few weeks, then you know that a little over a month ago, 
there were 13 pipe bombs sent out to various individuals of the Democratic Party and critics of Donald Trump. By God's grace, none of those went off. Just a few days later, on October 27th, a man by the name of Robert Bowers opened fire in the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, killing 11 and injuring others in the worst attack on Jews in U.S. history. I looked up last year's statistics by the FBI. They registered 1.2 million violent offenses registered. That included over 17,000 murders and 135,000 reported rapes. I think it goes without question that our culture struggles with anger and bitterness and the inability to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. I think that goes without question. In our Lord's discourse here in Matthew 18, Jesus spends 40% of this entire chapter talking about forgiveness. 15 out of 35 verses in chapter 18, he's explaining to and calling the church to, to forgive one another from the heart as he has forgiven us. And he doesn't just throw it in there haphazardly. This call to forgiveness comes systematically from the beginning of the chapter and then it concludes in the end. If you were here with us several weeks ago, you remember how he started off this discourse in Matthew 18. He started talking about how we must be like little children if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven. We must be humble. Well, you know humble hearts give and grant forgiveness easily. He warned all those who might cause one of his little ones to stumble. And then we saw in the last few weeks him calling the church to be like the good shepherd and going after the one who's left the 99, the one who's caught in willful, unrepentant sin. And he charged the church in love, in extreme love, to exercise church discipline as a rescue mission that we might be a people that see one another and love one another. When someone's hurting, we go to them and we call them back into the fold. And then as we saw last week, the authority of the binding and the loosening of sin for those who refuse to listen to the church, Christ said you must bind them to their sin and you must loosen them if they repent and whatever you bind on the earth is bound in heaven. And then we get to the last 15 verses here and Jesus comes in with a laser focus on forgiveness. Why here? Why does he end here? Why does he spend so much time on it here? What is it that we must know today and next week and maybe the week after? I hope to finish next week. I only got two verses this week, so I'm not doing so hot. Jesus knows a few basic things that he must, that he wants us to know as well. Number one, he wants us to know how hard it is going to be for sinners saved by grace to gather in a church like this and love one another and forgive one another. He knows that Local bodies are going to be a group of sinners saved by grace who say things that we ought not say and do things that hurt feelings and make people upset. And so he says, if you want to have a healthy church, you must be a forgiving church. He also knows that it is necessary for us to forgive and hard for us to give because when you're sinned against, it hurts. And that hurt is difficult to let go. Even in grace, it's hard. I think he also knows that in order for the church to be healthy, there must be unity, and without forgiveness, there can be no unity. We had a chance to see on Wednesday night from John 17, 
Jesus prayed to the Father that we might be one as he and the Heavenly Father are one. He actually says, make them perfectly one. Sin erects barriers. You know that. It builds walls. It destroys relationships between man and God and between man and man. And forgiveness, as you will see today by grace, has the power to tear those walls down. We can bring forgiveness into the DNA of this church. And in so doing, we can tear down the barriers that sin creates and bring the unity and the love and the mercy that God so wants in people that profess and claim Christ. And so we can argue that forgiveness is essential to love. It is a key to love that we might have and enjoy grace-filled relationships with one another in a local body of believers. And so I want to, with your permission, I'm not asking, but I need your permission anyway, This Sunday and next Sunday and possibly one more, I want to sit on this. Jesus thought it important enough to spend 40% of Matthew 18 on forgiveness. So we have to do more than one sermon. And the more I meditated on this and prayed about it and was convicted by it myself, the more I think we, Cambrian Park Baptist Church, need to hear it too. Three things I want us to see. One, the failure of the law. The law can't fix this problem of not forgiving people. Number two, the glory of grace. The power of the gospel of grace can fix it. And number three, the well-being of the saints. It is to our own, for our own good, and the glory of God and Christ to forgive one another from the heart. So let's do that. Let's take a look at the failure of the law first and see if we can get an understanding of what Peter was asking here and why he posed the question. So Jesus just finished his teaching on the authority of the church, church discipline, the call for us to bind and loosen someone to their sin. And then Peter wants to know, all right, Lord, to what degree do we do this? I mean, how far do we have to go? Look at verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, so remember, they're sitting in the house. Jesus is doing the teaching, and, and Peter goes up to him, and he's got a question about this whole restoration process. And he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You can, you can hear Peter's mind thinking, can't you? He says, all right, how long do we have to escalate the love of the process of church discipline that you just shared with us? I mean, we, we go through all four steps of church discipline. We, the person will not repent. We cast them out of the church. We treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. And then they come back. And they seek forgiveness. And we forgive them and we love them. And re- the relationship's restored. And then they do it again. And Peter says, and we go through Matthew 18 again. First one, then two or three. Then the entire church, they still won't listen. So we cast them out a second time. And we treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. And then they come back and they seek forgiveness and we restore the relationship. And then they do it again. Peter wants to know, how many times, Lord? Is there a number when we say enough's enough? Is there a a limit to this type of restoration and forgiveness that we as Christians and we as a Christian church grant to those who continue to sin against us? So that is the question. He wants a number. He wants a law. He wants a limit of how far and how long we must continue. Now, let's not, let's not frown upon Peter's question. We've all been there. We've all had someone in our life who has hurt us and harmed us in such a way that we've said, all right, enough's enough. You've gone too far. 
The fifth time, the sixth time, the seventh time, it's too much. I cannot and I will not forgive you this time. So we create these laws in our hearts as well. And so Peter, almost out of thin air, he picks a number. Seven times, Lord. Is that sufficient? Is seven times enough? Do I need to forgive my brother seven times and on the eighth time, anger, bitterness, wrath, judgment? Is that the standard, Lord? Now, it's really interesting that he picked seven. According to Jewish heritage, it was three. Did you know that? Really interesting. The Jews at the time of our Lord, from Job 33 and Amos chapter 1, verse 3, listen to the verse. For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. And so the Jews at the time of Christ wrongly misinterpreted Job 33 and Amos 1, and they believed that God said, forgive three times, but on the fourth time, bring the wrath. And they concluded, well, if that's God's standard, then certainly that would be okay for man's standard. And so they understood that, or they believed that the Bible actually taught three times forgive, on the fourth you need not forgive. And so Peter comes up with a number seven. And seven, as you know, is a biblical number representing perfection. And in, in the context of his culture, that would have seemed radically generous. Right? I mean, the culture says three times. Peter says four times. Peter says seven times. That's four times more than the cultural moment. Jesus' teaching had some impact on him. But seven was still not a good number because it was still a law, right? He was implementing a legal line by which he could say in his heart, once you pass that line, I need not forgive you. He was not looking for the gospel of grace here. He was looking for a point in time when he could say, all right, you hurt me too much. Or the church can say to a brother or sister, you've hurt us too much. No more, no more forgiveness. We're not letting you back in. And the reason that Peter wants this line is the same reason you want it. When someone sins against you, there's suffering. When someone sins against you, there's pain. Every time sin takes place, suffering and pain enters into the relationship, and someone has to receive it. Someone gets hurt when sin enters, and it must be received by someone. And so Peter wants to know when we can stop taking the pain. What line can we draw? Is it three times? Is it seven times? When can I say enough's enough? I'm not forgiving you. I'm not receiving that pain anymore. If, for example, I am harsh with my wife and I use unkind words towards her, she has a few options. She can take that pain and she can lash back at me. She can get me back. She can pay justice back. She can take it and store it for future use. As a card, a little blackmail to make me feel guilty in the future. Or she can do what the gospel calls her to do, and that is forgive. But if she does that, she's got to absorb it. She's got to bring the harsh words and the vile tongue into her life, and she's got to take it. She can go before Christ, and she can surrender to the cross, but she has to feel that pain. So when you forgive, you are saying this, listen, I won't seek vengeance. I won't pay back wrong for wrong, anger for anger. When you grant forgiveness, you are saying, I won't slander your name, even if only in my heart. I won't harbor anger against you, even if only in my heart. When you grant forgiveness, you are saying, I'm going to take the pain and the suffering myself. I will bear it that I might set you free from it. If a wife is cheated on by her husband, 
she has, listen, she has every right according to the law of God to divorce her husband. Jesus said so. But according to the law of the gospel, she has a higher calling as well. If she decides that she will grant grace and forgiveness, then she must absorb the pain of the adultery. She must receive that in full that she might keep the relationship restored and the covenant established with her husband. And if she does that, my beloved, she grants amazing grace. Amazing grace. But if she can say, you know what, I'll, I'll let you do it two times, three times, seven times. If she comes up with a law, then she knows in her mind, at some point in time, enough's enough. Once he crosses that line, then I can file a divorce and I can separate. And I no longer have to take the pain. I'll be able to withhold my forgiveness. I won't have to absorb it. I'll be able to inflict it myself if necessary. So how does Jesus respond to Peter's suggestion of seven times? Does he say, well done, Petros. Great number. Seven is fantastic. It's four more than the culture says. You're right on track. Wonderfully gracious. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, Peter, but 70 times seven. I do not say to you three times, Peter, like the culture says. I do not say to you seven times like you suggest. I say to you 70 times, seven times must you forgive those who seek forgiveness. Now, our poor boy Peter's probably looking for a stroke on the back, thinking he's going to be commended. The culture says three. He says seven. He's expecting something. And Jesus is gracious. I mean, Peter learned something. He had broken from the culture. He added four more forgivenesses into the law. But Jesus wants to take him to a whole new place. He says, Peter, I love you, but you're still thinking legally. I want you to think in terms of the gospel. I want you to get outside of the law and get into the law of the gospel, which enables you to forgive again and again and again, no matter how many times someone has sinned against you and no matter what they've done against you. Point number two, I pray you're still with me. Look at verse 22 again. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. This is the glory of the gospel. To grant forgiveness to this degree, Peter, not seven times, and then on the eighth, you bring judgment. Not 12 times, and on the third time, 13th time, you bring judgment. He says, no, Peter, take your seven. It's a play on words. Take your seven, multiply it by 10, multiply it by seven again. And you think, oh, okay, then it's 490 times. It actually has been interpreted as such. Can you imagine keeping that book, right, with the person in your life? All right, 298, 299, oh, you're getting there. 350? What is Jesus saying here? He's certainly not giving him, Peter, a new law. He's not giving Peter a new number. He's saying, your forgiveness for those who sin against you is to be limitless. There is no number. You want to rephrase it? You want to have your translation? You can put 70 times a million, 70 times a trillion. The gospel standard is this. When someone seeks forgiveness, you forgive Every single time, no matter what they've done to you. That's hard to hear. Say, so there, there's pain I cannot absorb. If I grant forgiveness, I must take that pain. There's pain I cannot absorb. And yet you're telling me this is exactly what Christ is saying, and I am. 
This is how radical the gospel of grace is. It says, enough with the law. Enough with three. Enough with seven. Right? You are to forgive as many times as someone seeks forgiveness. In Luke chapter 17, essentially the same story being told by Dr. Luke. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 17. In case there's any confusion on our numerology and you're thinking 491 comes the wrath. Luke 17, verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. This is the condensed version of Matthew 18. Verse 4, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, Jesus said, now listen, you must forgive him. Seven times in a day, you must forgive seven times. You're going to hit 490 in no time at that rate. And Jesus says that we must forgive. If you are a professing Christian, that means, now listen, you have received forgiveness from the cross of Jesus Christ. His broken body and his spilled blood enabled the Father who was ultimately and perfectly holy to forgive you. So as a professing Christian in Christ, listen, I say this in love, you have no right to deny forgiveness to anyone. You do not have that right. You have been given mercy. And must give mercy as well. You have no right to justify your bitterness or your anger or your unforgiving spirit. You have no right to that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have no right to withhold forgiveness of any kind from anyone because the very heart of the gospel is forgiveness. At the very heart of it. Now be very careful. Don't say, well then, why have we exercised church discipline? Remember where this is coming. This is following the explanation of Matthew 18 and church discipline and binding and loosening. This is the end of the process. I've heard this preached in such a way where it inverts what we've taught for the past three weeks. The very heart of the gospel that has saved you by grace is a heavenly forgiveness that comes down from heaven to man through Jesus Christ. And it's a forgiveness that was granted to you, listen, when you were dead, you were in rebellion, God granted you mercy. You didn't seek forgiveness first, and then God forgave you. God forgave you, and then you sought forgiveness. This is the process of regeneration that we believe the Bible teaches too clearly. Forgiveness given freely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's given for the glory of God, and it's given for the glory of man. You see, part of God's great plan to bring himself glory and honor was to grant forgiveness to sinners just like us. And he does this that his forgiveness might be known throughout the entire world. In other words, Jesus became the conduit for a holy God, a perfect God, a sinless God to bring us back into a right relationship with him by forgiving us through the Son, through the cross of Jesus Christ. He's able to forgive us because he placed the judgment upon Jesus. Instead of granting Jesus mercy, Jesus Christ did not need any. He did not sin. He put punishment upon Christ that we might receive mercy, that we might be forgiven. And in that great transaction upon the cross, God brings himself honor and glory by making a people for his own name's sake. That's his church. That's you. And that means, my beloved, every time, Every time you grant forgiveness to someone who has sinned against you, you are reflecting and magnifying the character of God as a forgiving God. Every single time 
you grant forgiveness. You point to the cross of Christ. And you say, I must forgive. I want to forgive because that's how I've been forgiven. That's the extreme nature of the forgiveness that I have received, the great work that Christ has done for me. And what you're doing when you forgive, you think it's small at times. It's not. Every single time you forgive someone who has sinned against you, every single time the church forgives someone who sinned against the church, we are displaying, putting on display for the world the heart of God. We are saying to the world, our God is a forgiving God. It is part of his character and nature. And so we are forgiving too because we are his children. And we have been forgiven much as we will see next week. In fact, so central to the character and nature of God is forgiveness is that he calls us to forgive as well because it is also for, now listen, it is also for the glory of man. You say, where do I get that? I get the forgiveness for the glory of God, but how is it for the glory of man also? Proverbs 19.11, listen closely. This is an extraordinary statement about us. Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. It is his glory to grant forgiveness and mercy. In other words, you're never at your best like you are when you're granting forgiveness for someone who has sinned against you. The Christian is at their very best when that brother or sister says, I forgive you completely. The sin is gone. It's buried. Our relationship is restored. It is the most glorious display that man can give. It is the most glorious display ever given by a man. And of course, you know that to be Jesus Christ, not us. And you know that to be the cross of Christ. When our Lord ascended the cross with his already beaten and bloodied body. When he was spit upon and mocked and when they took him naked and rejected and they hammered the nails through his hands and his feet as he's writhing in agony, not only in physical pain, but from the spiritual pain of the father forsaking him in that moment that he might bear the full eternal wrath that we deserved. What does he say? Does he say, get them, Father. Punish them, Father. No, you know what he says. He says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. These are unbelievable words. The Son of Man, sinless, came to save. He came to heal. He came to teach. Mankind took the Son of God and nailed him to a cross. And instead of God, instead of Christ calling for the angels to come down and set him free, he stayed on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. No greater display by any man. The second Adam. No greater glory to man than the greater, than the great God Christ doing this work for us. It's unbelievable. Granting forgiveness by those and for those who brought the greatest suffering upon any man ever. John MacArthur had a great quote, so I got to include it. I don't usually do this, but I love it so much. I'm going to read it to you. Listen. Forgiveness is a glory of man. It is the highest human virtue. You show me an honorable man you show me a man with real character and I'll show you a man who can forgive. You show me a man who carries a bitterness deep down in his soul and I'll show you a man without character. 
You show me a person who cannot release some vengeful, bitter, antagonistic, hateful attitude towards somebody, and I'll show you a man who knows not neither the glory of a man nor understands the forgiveness God has for him. I think that's true. I think that's right. The men and women in your life that resonate the greatest character of God living in them are forgiving people. They're not bitter. They're not angry. They're not constantly seeking justice and vengeance. They heard Paul say in Colossians 3.13, to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's the forgiveness you have received. My beloved, we become the ultimate hypocrites when we take from the cross of Christ the forgiveness he offers for sinners like us and then we do not grant it to someone who sins against us. The greatest hypocrisy. It is the glory of man and the glory of God that we should forgive. And if the gospel has gotten a hold of your heart, you're not thinking three or seven or 490. That law is dismissed. If the gospel has gotten a hold of your heart, then it is your desire to forgive, even though it's really hard. No one's saying this is easy. In fact, I would argue for those of you who have been tremendously hurt, one of the hardest things we're called to do is to forgive those who have sinned against us, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Hard. So don't for a minute think that I'm saying this is easy. I am saying it's not optional. It's not optional for Christians. It's not optional for a church to say we will not forgive. If grace has captivated your heart, you must and you will want to. For all those who've treated you poorly, for all those who've said things that run true about you, for all those who smeared your name or physically hurt you, for all those who broke promises and broke covenants, who did things to you that you still think about and still bring pain, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can set them free and you can be set free by granting forgiveness. Two years ago, most of you know that we put a man under church discipline for the ill treatment of his wife in this church. He engaged in the most systematic and slanderous attack on me and our church in my 22 years here at Cambrian Park. Unprecedented, as most of you know. Sending out multiple letters to the congregation and to every pastor and ministry leader in San Jose and beyond. My flesh was rightfully angry but by his grace, in a relatively short time, because of brothers who came alongside of me and said, we must forgive, God gave me pity for the man instead of anger. He changed my anger into prayer, and he changed my hostility into love. So damaging was this that even last week, talking to a brother from another church, it came up. Two years removed. By God's grace, I can stand before you right now and it's purely by his grace that I have no bitterness toward the man. I wish and pray for his well-being. I, I pray that he will see his sins and come back and make things right. And I pray that on that day, if he were to come through those doors and seek forgiveness from me and from our church, we as a church and I in my heart would say, come back, we love you, we forgive you. By God's grace, we would. By God's grace, I would. And we would because that's how Christ loves us. That's how Christ has forgiven us. 
My beloved, you and I need daily forgiveness from Christ. Every day I need to be forgiven by the Lord. Every day I sin against him. If, he, if God had established 490 as the law and 491 times at that moment, then wrath comes, we'd all perish. We sin multiple times a day, multiple times a week. We hit 490 like that. But grace says, I'll continue to forgive again and again and again. So Christians saved by grace through the blood of Christ say, not the law of man, but the law of the gospel. Not seven times or 490 times, but Ephesians 4.32. We are to be kind and compassionate with one another, forgiving each other just as Christ just as in Christ God forgave you and me and all who repent and believe. For the glory of God, for the glory of man, forgiveness, my beloved, better be visible in this church. I mean, it, it has to be part of our DNA, something we see being granted, asked for, and received again and again and again because we are constantly sinning against one another. I had a brother come up to me right before the service who actually did sin, and it was something relatively minor. It had not crossed my mind. He said, I need you to forgive me for this. And I said, well, praise God, you're already responding to the sermon. It hasn't been preached yet. So I forgave him, of course. I, I got one more point. I pray you're still with me. The law does not work. The gospel does work, and it is for our own good. Point number three, forgiveness for the well-being of the saints. Jesus brings a laser focus on forgiveness here at the end of this discourse because he knows it is destructive for us when we do not forgive. You want to ruin your life? You want to make a mess of the bride? Don't forgive. Take bitterness. Take anger. Be vengeful. Store it up in your heart. And it won't take long and you'll be a mess. Your relationships will be bad. Your marriage will be bad if you're married. With your children will be bad. Certainly in the context of the body, it will be bad. Forgiveness is hard, as we talked about, but it's not optional. The gospel of Jesus Christ is necessary in our daily lives to get an upper hand on this sin. And it's a subtle one. It's so easy to justify the wrong against you. It's so easy to take that pain and say, you know what? It is right that I inflict it back. Our flesh is justice, justice, justice. The gospel says grace and forgiveness must trump it. It's not optional because, my beloved, whether you like it or not, when you join this local church, you are commanded. I'll read it to you, Ephesians 4, 3. To what? To make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, if we're going to make every effort, that means we must be a forgiving people. We can't say, Lord, we're trying really hard for unity and trying really hard for peace, but I will not forgive. That doesn't make any sense. We must forgive. If unity and peace, we must make every effort to. We must forgive, and we must forgive quickly, and we must forgive completely, as we'll see next week. And we must do that for one another. Because if someone seeks forgiveness, or if you hold something against them, even if they don't ask for forgiveness, you hold them in bondage, you enslave them, you know that. You put them in a place that you don't want them to be as a brother or sister in Christ. If my son, for example, comes to me and he seeks forgiveness for running my car into a pole, true story, if he asks me to forgive him for that, and I do not, not a true story, I did, but let's say that I didn't, 
Let's say that I, I'm going to hold that against him. What do I have now? I have relational power over him. I have blackmail power. I have guilt power. And if he wants to be right with me, I can make him grovel and I can make him suffer and I can exercise my authority using his sin. That is what the flesh loves. That's what the spirit hates. He hates that. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians the man who was put under church discipline? And he responded. The church cast him out and he came back. Paul was concerned that too much pressure would be put on the man, that forgiveness would not be granted to the man upon his return and would cause him to stumble. Listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and following. He said, this punishment, the exercising of church discipline by the majority is enough. And then he says in verse 7, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Do you realize that? When you refuse to forgive a brother or sister in Christ, you may overwhelm them with excessive sorrow. You may cause them to stumble. Now, what did Christ say at the beginning of this chapter? Better a millstone tied around your neck and you thrown into the deep sea than to cause one of his little ones to stumble. So we must forgive for the sake of our brothers, to restore them to us, to restore them before God, to work hard to that end. But you also, my beloved, you must forgive for your own soul. You must forgive for you. And that's not a self-centered, it's all about me perspective on forgiveness. It is what the Bible teaches. If you do not forgive, you will enslave yourself. A lack of forgiveness is like cancer that just eats away. And it doesn't take that long to cause significant damage. So first, I would argue, by refusing to forgive, you are inviting a bitter root to grow in your heart. A bitter root, stripping you of the joy that you have in the salvation of Christ. Where do I get that? Hebrews chapter 10, listen. Hebrews chapter 10, the author says, Strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone, verse 14. Then verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no, bitter, no, no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Saints, you have to have a clear conscience with one another. If someone has sought forgiveness from you and you have not granted it, you are asking for a bitter root to come in and ruin you, ruin your joy in the Lord. If you refuse to forgive, God has forgiven. If he has forgiven and you say, no, I will not forgive, and then you have enough sense to not exercise vengeance, remember, sin always brings pain and suffering in to a relationship. So you say, I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to exercise judgment. What must you do? It's got to go in, and it goes in deep. And those are the roots of bitterness that get a hold of your heart and mind and soul and sour the soul. In the Greek, it literally means a resentful spirit. I like souring of the soul. You know what that's like. You know what that's like. Humility fades. Grace fades. Love goes away. You're not terribly concerned about other people. When you become resentful, anger and bitterness begin to define your character, not humility not compassion. And the worst part is, my beloved, you'll be a poor testimony to the world and you will lose the joy of Christ. You can't have a bitter heart and rejoice in the Lord. 
You can't walk around angry and vengeful and unforgiving and say daily, I'm thankful. They work against each other. So to prevent this bitter root, listen, you must forgive someone who seeks forgiveness from you every single time they ask, no matter what they have done, again and again and again. You must grant that forgiveness completely, without grudges, without holding anything over them, no blackmail, no guilt. We all laugh because we've all done it. We said, all right, I'll forgive you, but you're going to work for it. That's not biblical forgiveness. Working to be forgiven is not what God has us do. Not only must you forgive every time someone seeks forgiveness from you, you must forgive even when they don't. Did you hear that? Because that's the hardest part, I think. We, it's so easy for us to justify, well, if they didn't ask for it, I don't need to give it. Now, let me be really clear on this. Really, I want to be crystal clear scripturally. If they don't ask for forgiveness, you can't grant it and then the re- relationship be reconciled. It has to go both ways for the relationship to be reconciled. But just because they don't ask for it doesn't mean that you can't forgive. You say, well, how does that work? How does that work? Our Lord forgave you before you asked. Our Lord granted mercy before you proclaimed Christ. And so you can, you can guard your heart from that bitter root by not harboring anger, by not being resentful, by knowing that God has forgiven you, therefore you're going to forgive that person and be prepared to receive them when they seek forgiveness from you. You'll be like the father with the prodigal son. You're waiting, you're waiting, and you're eager to forgive because you don't have anger and bitterness and vengeance in your heart. And so you're prepped for reconciliation. And not a good place for all of us to be. It is so good. It means that even though they don't ask for forgiveness, you will not allow that bitter root to go in. You will not allow it. In other words, you can use the energy and the motivation that anger produces to go to God in prayer for that person who sinned against you, for your own heart that it doesn't become bitter. The Bible says, listen, my beloved, the Bible does not say, do not be angry. It says, do not sin in your anger. Do not become bitter in your anger. Do not seek vengeance in your anger. You see the difference? Because when we're sinned against, sometimes that anger is a right response. It's a righteous response. And sometimes when those whom we love are sinned against, it's a really righteous response. But if you then say, all right, I, I will, vengeance will be mine, Lord. I will judge, Lord. Now you've replaced God upon the throne of your heart with yourself. And in so doing, you will bring much harm and misery. So what you should do with that anger, there's a lot of energy in anger. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, there's a lot of energy. You can do a lot of things when you're angry. So what should you do with it? Say, all right, don't be angry. No, if the angry is righteous, take the anger to the cross of Christ. Go to God in prayer. Go to the word. Go to a brother and sister and say, I want to harness this energy to pray for that person. I want to harness this anger so that I won't get a bitter root in my heart. I want to harness the energy of the anger in me that I might forgive now, even though they haven't asked for it and maybe never will. There's great energy there to be used for the glory of God. Instead of exacting vengeance, you can ask for humility and grace. You can ask, I think, for one of the hardest things we're commanded to do. When Jesus said, and he wasn't kidding, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that's a hard one. I mean, that's a hard one. 
You say, well, I, I think it's hard, you know, just gathering on a Sunday and forsaking the gathering of the saints. That's not hard comparing to loving your enemies. And praying for them? Take the anger and the energy from that and bring it into prayer that we might become these people. So I'll ask you this. If a bitter root strips us of our joy in Christ and you are lacking joy in Christ right now, and you evaluate your life, and you say, you know what, I, I don't see any besetting sin. There's nothing I can point to on a daily basis that I'm in willful, unrepentant sin, but yet I lack joy. It's probably here. Do you know that? A lack of forgiveness in the heart creates a bitter root that strips us of our joy for years and years and years. And so if you lack joy, take this teaching and go before God today, tomorrow, sometime this week, and say, Lord, show me with whom I am angry. Show me with whom I am still not forgiving. Who is it that I'm withholding forgiveness from? Last week, I was counseling a brother who has, for all intents and purposes, for the last year, he's lost his joy. I don't see joy in Christ. He has such anger and such animosity for a few people in his life that have not sought forgiveness. They've exacerbated it. They've made it worse. They blamed him, and it wasn't his fault. But it's stripping of his joy. And so I counseled him right with this passage. I said, you've got a bitter root. It's taken hold of you. You've got to eradicate it. You've got to forgive. He said to me, I can't forgive. They haven't sought it. I said, it doesn't matter. You have to forgive. In Christ, you must forgive. Only forgiveness from the heart has the power to eradicate and pull up the bitter root. Only forgiveness from the heart can pull it out. There's another reason I want to give you. If you don't forgive, you are saying to Satan, come on in. Not only are you saying to your flesh, grow a bitter root, but you're saying to Satan, come on in. Where do I get that? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 and following, Paul says this, anyone, any Anyone you forgive, I also forgive, says Paul, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not aware, for we are not unaware of his schemes. In other words, this struggle to forgive, the reason it's so hard and the reason that you battle with it so much, it's not just your flesh. It's not just your pride. It's just not you saying, I'm not taking the pain again. I'm not going to absorb it one more time. Satan has his hand in it. and He's stirring it up. And he wants you to think about, oh, how can I justify this? How can I get this person back? In fact, I would argue, in the context of the church, it's one of his sharpest weapons. Keeping us from forgiving one another, and that's a tool he loves to use. Because he can bring so much strife and so much anger. Instead of our anger being turned into grace and the hurt going to prayer, he says, do you remember what they did? Do you remember what they said? Yeah, it was five years ago, but they said it. They never asked for forgiveness. Do you remember how you felt when they said those hurtful words? Do you remember that anger you had? Satan says, that's good anger. Use that not to pray, not to seek forgiveness, not to set them free. Satan says, use that anger and get them back. Hurt them. Separate yourself from them. If not directly, then indirectly. Shun them, be unkind to them. Do not receive them as Christ called us in Matthew 18, verse 1, to receive us as little children. We had a brother here a few years ago, and he got into it with a new member, another brother in Christ, over a doctrinal issue. 
both had good credence scripturally to argue their points. The new member in Christ came to this brother and sought forgiveness for the argument. They both said things they should not have said. The new, the new member in Christ came and said, listen, I, I said things with my tongue. I sinned with my tongue. I want you to forgive me. This older member who was in a position of leadership not only did not grant forgiveness, he would not seek it. A bitter root had taken hold and Satan had outwitted him. He left the church, this older member, he left the church in shambles and when I saw him last, he was undone, undone, unwitted because he let Satan in. This is no small matter, my beloved. You say, I will not forgive. You are asking the evil one to come and deceive you and how easily deceived we can be. So for our own well-being, we want to make sure the bitter root does not get hold. For our own well-being, we want to make sure we don't open the door for Satan. And I'm going to give you one more. I'm going to close. You, my beloved, are oftentimes your own worst enemy when it comes to this battle. Ironically, over the years, when I was contemplating forgiveness, the most difficulty we find in forgiving is oftentimes ourselves. It's ourselves. The problem is the same gospel applies to you, right? How many of you have stumbled in a sin and sought forgiveness seven times? How many of you have stumbled in a sin and sought forgiveness 490 times? Have you created a law in your own heart three times, seven times, 490 times, and you said to yourself, that's it. That's it. I can't believe I did it again. I can't believe I sinned again. I can't confess it again to God. He cannot forgive me again. Have you had that lie come in? I have. I said, I cannot believe I did it again. He won't forgive me this time. The singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson, he wrote a song to his daughter, a perfectionist, who was unable to forgive herself on multiple occasions. He wrote a song entitled, Be Kind to Yourself. Listen to some of the lyrics. Super powerful. He wanted his daughter to hear and forgive herself because God had forgiven her. He writes, how does it end when the war that you're in is just you against you against you? He says, you've got to learn to love, learn to love, learn to love your enemies too, which of course included herself. And then he writes, you can't expect to be perfect. It's a fight you've got to forfeit. You belong speaking on behalf of God to me, whatever you do. So lay down your weapon, darling. Take a deep breath and believe that I love you. Be kind to yourself. Now that sounds a bit new agey. It certainly sounds like the culture. That's not the point here. He's saying, listen, if you've sought forgiveness from God, now listen with all your might. Those of you who do this well, you fight against yourself well. If you've sought forgiveness from God, the Bible says if you've confessed that sin from the heart, he has forgiven you of that sin and cleansed you, listen, 1 John, from all unrighteousness. You're purified. Not because of you, but because of Christ. You must hear Jesus say to you, as he said to Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven, 70 times a million, 70 times a trillion. You can't sin so much that God says enough. You can't. You seek forgiveness from God, God forgives every time, infinitely more quickly than you can forgive yourself. So to deny the gospel of forgiveness 
to yourself or to anyone for that matter is a denial of the cross and sacrifice of our Lord. In fact, I would argue, and I think most of you would agree, if you refuse to forgive in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whatever the sin is that you are so bothered by, you can't grant forgiveness to a brother or sister or to your own heart, whatever that sin is, it is nothing compared to the sin you are committing by denying the power of grace that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. It's his body. It's his blood. So when you do not forgive, you are saying to God the Father, the sacrifice of Christ is insufficient say that. I don't even like saying that from the pulpit with my mouth. It's a denial of the blood-bought sacrifice that the God, God the Father made for you in Christ. It's a denial of that work. So are you struggling with forgiveness this morning? I imagine most of us are to some degree. Then I'm, I'm going to give you one application point. It's real simple. You've got to go to Calvary. You've got to go to the cross. You have to cast your eyes upon a crucified Savior who did what? The the Bible says he received our sins in his body. Let me rephrase that. He absorbed your pain. When sin comes in, someone has to take it. Jesus Christ said, I'll take it. I'll take all the pain. I'll take all the suffering. I'll take all the sin in my flesh on the cross. For what reason? That we might be forgiven. That we might be received. All that sin has to go somewhere. And Christ, out of love, said, let it come upon me. When he said to the Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he was also saying, Father, bring that upon me. Bring the wrath, bring the judgment that they might be forgiven and set free and come all the way in. That they might be received as sons and daughters. All the pain and suffering of your eternity in hell upon Christ to forgive you to forgive you. Every time you struggle with bitterness in your heart, gaze upon a crucified Christ. Every time you find yourself unrighteously angry and finding a desire to seek vengeance, gaze upon a broken body and spilled blood. And I would argue you cannot stay in anger. I don't believe you can go to the cross and look upon Christ and what he's done for us and say, I will stay vengeful, I will stay angry. Your heart will change. Your heart must change. And you will grant forgiveness to anyone who seeks it and even to those who don't, no matter what they've done. No matter what they've done. His broken body on the cross is the supreme emblem of God's extreme forgiveness granted to you by grace. You gaze upon him, and your heart will soften. And you'll be able to look upon him and then turn and look upon the world again instead of bitterness and anger and rage and vengeance. You will sing with Christ in the chorus, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Your heart will be his heart. My beloved, I'm not for a moment saying this is easy. I think this is one of the hardest things we're commanded to do but no law is going to help you. The gospel of grace has the power to set you free from the bitter root that can take hold when we don't forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. Amen? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we've heard passage after passage read today. We've had a chance to hear proclaimed Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22. And yet I imagine there are still many here in our hearts saying, no, but I have better reason to not forgive. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the pain that was brought against me. Even now, Lord, with all the prayers and all the songs and all the verses read and the proclamation of a crucified Christ, even now our hearts want to justify remaining angry, remaining bitter. I pray you would cast that out. Help us to see, Father, that forgiveness is for your glory. Forgiveness is for the glory of man. Forgiveness is for our own well-being, that we might not be subject to the evil one or subject to our own flesh. Father, I pray that you would overwhelm us rightly in the gospel with the extreme grace that's been granted that we might as a people, individually and collectively, Cambrian Park Baptist Church, be known as a forgiving people. That when our DNA is looked at, when the culture is analyzed, they would say, that people, they knew how to forgive. Father, we know that if we can become like that, we will be as you are. We know that if we can become like that, Father, that you will be glorified in this place. Help us, Lord in the midst of a culture filled with hate and vengeance, be forgiving and merciful. We ask that you would do that, Lord, so that this lampstand here in Cambrian Park might be on display for the whole world to see. We ask that you would do that for your own glory and for the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.